Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Thomas Kramer. Thomas is the Chief Financial Officer at IonQ. Mr. Kramer is an experienced Chief Financial Officer with an extensive background leading companies through rapid growth. At IonQ, Mr. Kramer focuses on commercializing the infrastructure and managing the company's relationships with investors and the public markets. He sits on the boards of PerfectServe, Peak Dental Systems, and Minds Matter DC. Previously, Mr. Kramer was the CFO of Opower, where he guided the company through its initial public offering and its sale later to Oracle, and co-founder and CFO of Cvent, where he took the company from zero revenue through the largest private software financing in the United States at that time. Thomas, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Megan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, today we're going to be discussing your experience, having gone through all stages of a company's life cycle. I'm sure you've got some great advice to share with our audience today, and I'm looking forward to hearing your story. So let's get started. Well, thank you very much, Megan. I think it's interesting to think of companies as people or (laughs) organisms. And the thing about companies is that they move so much faster in their life cycle than humans do. So human life cycle used to be 30 years, and today it's probably closer to 70. The corporate life cycle is 10 years for the good ones and less for others. And often you just move through those cycles so fast that it's hard to keep up because humans are not growing as fast as organizations. And I've been lucky enough to see uh, both the beginnings of companies and the near end, uh, near unfortunate ends, as well as taking them public and selling them to larger companies. And that has been been great for me. Um, I didn't grow up here in this country. I grew up in Norway. And then when I was a couple years out of uh, school, I had to go see about a girl in Boston. And so I moved there uh, for business school. And then after business school, I joined a company called the Boston Consulting Group, which is a strategy consulting firm. And this was in the late, late 90s. And everybody could see the dot crash happening. And I had, for so long as I've been doing anything professionally, I've been focused on internet and what does this mean? And I I was certain that was going to be a fad and it's going to be all over after circa 2000. And then we go back to having boring jobs. So I did the... um, possible worst thing you can do if you think that something's going to end. I saw the internet window closing and I jumped straight into it. And <laughs> I started a company in 1999 called Cvent. Cvent was and still is an event management software company on a SaaS basis. And um, we, we started in 99. By the end of 99, we were 30 people. By the end of 2000, we were 100 people. And in March of 2001, we were 134 people. Then in April of 2001, we were 27 people. So we kept more than 80% of the uh, company because we had to, because we were spending on drunken savers. And uh, because actually we weren't spending that much, but we were overspending and the funding window had closed down. And that's when I figured out that, oh, Companies should make money. And if they don't, they go under. 
So we uh, buckled up and we drove the company to profitability in two years. And then uh, we went on to do the largest private software financing uh, for the past decade in 2010, I believe. And then the company goes public in 2013 and sells to Vista Equity in 15. And this quarter is going public again <laughs> at a $5 billion valuation. It is, everybody who's listening to this podcast will have used event, but you may not know it because it's the world's largest event uh, registration platform and you mask the URL. But that's the boring technology that sits behind and lets you go to conferences and register and pay, etc. Wow, that's an amazing story. Um, so, it wasn't as amazing when I was there. I can yeah. tell you it was a little harrowing. <laughs> I'm sure there were some tough times. I mean, it definitely sounds like that. How uh, I mean, how did you go from, you know, 100 plus employees down to 27? Like, how do you decide who to keep and, and who needs to be let go? Well, uh, there was a story a couple of days ago in the news about a person who fired 900 people via Zoom. I heard, yeah, I saw that story. And uh, I have no idea of whether the, uh, those firings or layoffs were warranted, but probably they were because people don't do this lately. We sat together and planned for pretty much two weeks straight about what's the absolute minimum we could have to not go under. And then we kept as many people as we could because we figured we had two choices. We could either uh, go up with a bang and just like have a good party and then every week is laid off. Or we could try the very best and make something uh, of the money we had raised and the assets, the software assets we had and the people that we could keep. And at that point... It was two years of drudgery and it was not fun. But at that point, we refused to give up because we had to lay off so many people that it would haunt me if that was for naught. And thankfully, it worked out. Yeah, definitely sounds like it did. And I imagine as the years go by that a company's life cycle, it seems to be getting faster and faster over time. I mean, I look back like 100 years ago and companies, maybe not, but they seem to be around forever. Um, whereas today it seems like a company's life cycle, like you said, is maybe 10 years for the good ones. Right. I mean, the, uh, obviously there are companies like GE and GM and Ford and Chrysler that stay around for a long time, but they are the exceptions. Yeah. So if you take most, uh, most industries, you take the top 10 companies in any industry. And if you go decade by decade, you will see that, it's rare that it's all the same 10 companies decade to the next. There's usually one or two that survives. And then things change really fast. So as you look back on your career, what were the pivotal moments or turning points that stand out in your mind? Well, uh, there was obviously the, uh, the fact that when we had to lay off people, that made it, that made it more serious and made us focus on doing the best that we possibly could and not waste. And that's, you know, that is good in the CFO role. Um, but I will also admit that I didn't really pick to become a CFO. Like people who wake up one morning and say they, have to, they want to become a CFO, I question what they drank about that night. Because <laughs> uh, it's a nebulous role. And I fell into it because I like 
I care about so many things in a company that I care about how you interweave them and make them work. And a CFO is like a service center for the rest of the organization. We have lots and lots of customers and most of them are internally. And then when you become public, you uh, start having more external customers. But really what the CFO office does is just help all the other parts of the company get better. And that is a fun thing for me. And how have you seen the role of the CFO evolve over the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years? So since I've been in tech and startup land for so long, it hasn't really changed for me. Uh, But what I see and observe in both academia and industry and newspaper articles is that it used to be that you had two types of CFOs. There's one that was an accountant and there was one that was a banker. And um, I think we're seeing less of the accountant side or accountant styled CFO to more of a uh, COO role where the CFO actually goes in and helps operate other departments and because they can give crucial information. It's no longer about accounting and making sure you file your books correctly. Instead, it is about ensuring that you get the best outcome. And that's very different than thinking of it from an accounting perspective. So let's talk about your current organization, IonQ. What what exactly is it that they do? I'm glad you asked. And uh, this is my favorite question at cocktail parties, because I get to say that uh, we literally shoot lasers at the smallest pieces of uh, mechanism or organisms in the universe, atoms. And we use that as the basic building block of the computer of the future. So literally the things we use to compute are so small you cannot see them. And you might ask yourself, why do you do this? Well, the we've all heard about Moore's law about how computing capacity doubles every 18 months and the price stays the same. For quite some time, we have no longer been able to quite double the capacity of a computer every 18 months. And that is because we're reaching the physical limits of how many transistors you can put on the chip because they're so tiny. Like your iPhone has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them. And there's just limits to how small they can get. Additionally, there are some problems that today's computers are not very well equipped to handle. And because they require a different way of solving the problem. As an example, if you look look at UPS, each driver at UPS can do about 120 deliveries per day. To figure out the the ideal way of organizing his delivery route is something called a factorial. And if you remember back to high school math, that means that to find the number of possible combinations that you could run a delivery route, you take, and there are 120 stops, you do 119 times 118 times 117 times 116 and so forth. The number is so large that it's larger than the age of the earth in nanoseconds. So a computer can't actually calculate the optimal delivery route today. Famously, um, UPS's solution to this is that they only make right turns. And so the scheduler will ensure that trucks only take right turns because because then you have to wait less. So 
this is a this is a very well known problem, and it's because computers have to solve things sequentially. Uh, there are, but it's because it's using a particular kind of math, and there are other types of math. For uh, for about a hundred years, there's been a field within physics called quantum physics or quantum mechanics, which deals with uh, how to solve for uh, algorithms like this. And it's relatively well understood. The only problem was that people who did understand it were people like Einstein and Feynman and a number of physicists that nobody else could understand. Today, uh, the field has gotten much larger. And now people have been trying to put quantum mechanics into a compute structure. The challenge with this is that if you do it on a classical computer, you will need so much hardware that you end up using more and more um, data centers just to solve these equations. If you instead build a computer that works differently, then you can solve these problems that heretofore has not been able to be solved in a reasonable time. And the way you do that is by using qubits as the basic building block instead of bits. So bits is like a light bulb, it can be zero or one. A qubit can be both zero and one at the same time and they will have a probability distribution between them. That means that you can store much richer data sets and you can handle much more complex problems and algorithms. So that is what uh, INQ is doing. And um, we are currently actually doing pretty well. There was a recent industry study by QEDC that showed that our computers outperformed all the other quantum providers out there, including Honeywell and uh, IBM by a factor of at least two. And uh, for that, we're, we're part of that. And we, we intend to continue on our leadership path. So how long has IonQ been around and who, who are your customers? Who's buying these quantum right. computers? So our two co-founders have been working on quantum computers for 25 years around about. But the company itself is six years old. In fact, we had the company birthday on a Thursday, which was the last of September. And then the next, very next day, we bust the entire company up to New York and onto the trading floor of New York Stock Exchange and we went public. So that was a, a fun event. And also very uncommon both to be able to take your entire company onto the floor yep. and to be able to go public when you're only six years old. And... That, that is an amazing feat for sure. But what are your proudest achievements since joining IonQ? So I think that the, um, the success of this company lingers on can we get the best people? And I am very proud of having hired a great staff that works with me in finance. And uh, in particular, uh, we have uh, Jordan Shapiro who comes to us from NEA, which is a big VC, who was so excited about this particular company that he decided to stop messing around being an investor and instead come to raise things. Uh, additionally, I uh, hired Kevin Kamey, who was the controller at my last company, Opar, and we took that company public together. And it's great to be working with people that you already know because it takes down uncertainty and enables you to deliver faster things. Of things that from the finance side that had gone well for the company is um, 
as you probably know, we went public via SPAC. And a little uh, unknown detail for most lay people, at least, about SPACs is that right before you complete the transaction and you merge with the SPAC company, all the holders of the shares in the SPAC can ask for their money back. And that is, you know, pretty harrowing because you're doing this merger so that you can get the money. We are wanting them to build bigger and faster and better uh, quantum computers, of course. But um, the SPACs fell a little out of favor around April, May this year. What's known as redemptions, that's investors asking for their money back, went extremely high. So right when we went out, the average of the average size of a redemption for companies that had traded less than $10.25, say, two weeks prior to when their redemption notice go out, would have 56% of their capital redeemed. So we are raising $300 million through the SPAC. And to have half of that just go away because people changed their mind, <laughs> well, that was, um, that was not a happy feeling. But uh, we did the only thing we could do, which is talk to our investors and convince them of like what it is we're doing, what's the roadmap, why is this company worth investing in? And we were lucky enough to only see 2.5% uh, redemptions for our SPAC. And that is, uh, given the times, a heroically low number, of course. So you're, the, you're actually the second CFO that I've talked to this year that has gone public through a SPAC. Um, you mentioned that they fell out of favor in, in March or April of this year. Why was that? Well, uh, there's been an unprecedented buildup in SPAC as vehicles to go public. And there's been a, there's a lot of money right now seeking for investments. And you could surmise that, that would eventually lead to them seeking less high quality investments. And therefore, it could be a risk to the investing public. And there's been a lot of press about it back and forth. And then the SEC was a little late to the game in terms of regulations. And in uh, April and May, they came out with a new rule for how to account for warrants, exactly where they should sit on the balance sheet. And And then there was lots of articles about that and how this is bad or good. The reality is that where you put your warrants on the balance sheet is completely irrelevant for what's going on when you're taking company public. Uh, but it was the SEC's way of signaling uh, a greater interest in, uh, in managing this particular uh, financial vehicle, which I think is a good thing. It should be managed. It should be just as well uh, thought through as a regular S1 process for going public. And I would say that the way we went public, even though we went through, uh, there's this SEC form called the S4, and for a regular IPO, we use an S1. The work we did was almost identical because when I took OPAR public, we had actually the same bankers, it was Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, and we used a uh, top-end law firm and a top-end accounting firm, and they just won't do it any other way. So... It was all the same work. It was not faster than traditional IPO uh, for us. And we felt really good about it. But there is a, um, 
you know, there's a category of facts who think that um, going out this way is just fast and easy and we can pull things uh, by the market in a way that wouldn't be allowed in the other format of going public, i.e. an IPO. And that has caused some, you know, grumblings in the market. Uh, but as long as your company is fundamentally sound, of course, it doesn't matter which uh, mechanism you choose to go public. So why did you choose to go this route rather than a more traditional IPO? So for us, I don't think going public through a traditional IPO was an option, given that uh, the, the typical profile for a tech company that goes to IPO is that you have somewhere around $100 million in revenue although this number has floated up lately. And then uh, you need to be on a fast growth trajectory of like 30%, uh, at which point you will get the attention of investors. Uh, IMQ is very early on in its commercialization strategy. That means that we don't have $100 million in revenue, but we foresee such fast developments that uh, this will follow quickly. And there are no public investment vehicles to invest in quantum computing. So it was an underserved part of the market for capital, if you want. And the alternative for us was to just raise a ton of money uh, through private means. But typically you raise for 18 months, then you go out and raise again. And that is very time consuming. And we saw a way to go out and raise $650 million through a stack in a pipe and on all in one fell swoop which will allow us to deliver on our technical roadmap and get to cash flow profitability without doing more fundraising. And that was very attractive to us. And what do CFOs need to know before, before they make the decision or venture through the process of going public? Well, the uh, going public for any, any methodology that you pick, the most important thing for CFOs is to have enough visibility that you can forecast accurately. And that may seem like uh, table stakes, but in a small company and you just started, you're a couple of years old, you really don't know what's going to happen <laughs> the next month, the next quarter, because there's all these new things that you never heard about. And then you have to implement those. That isn't a good situation to be in in the public market because public investors uh, appreciate consistency more than anything. And having gone through all stages of company development from founding and raising venture capital to IPO and then uh, public reporting and exit, what, what which of those is your favorite stage and why? Yeah, so every stage, apart from stages where you have to downsize, uh, has something to offer that's interesting. I mean, it's always fun to do transactions. There's like there's adrenaline and such. But if all you do is transactions, it also just becomes a little um, short-sighted. Um, I like to be in the stage of a company where you're still developing the product and you can see you can see the future being created right in front of you. And to be part of that team to, that does that, both in bringing forward the product as well as uh, seeing the growth and the commercial successes is fun. There's just opportunity when companies grow and the ability to hire more people and go into new market is it's very exciting. And you mentioned uh, that 
one of the things you were proudest of was was hiring a great team. So these days, um, seems like talent is just in short supply, no, no matter where around the globe you're looking. So what advice do you have for hiring the best people and then making sure that they stick around? Well, since we are in the middle of the, what is it called? The great resignation. Yes. Um, it's a very uh, pertinent question. I think that the best you can do uh, is to be honest and tell people about both the company that you're hiring for and also the team that they're being hired into. And then once they're, they have accepted your offer, building it a team that cares about each other and that cares about its development is very, very important. It can be tempting in today's world to just zoom it in and uh, never leave the house and just go to the meetings, deliver stuff. But you're going to lose some of the connecting tissue uh, that we have in society if you don't interact with people. Because when you interact is when you, you learn and you create things out of nothing because you have more input than just your own. And so when you do this in a consistent uh, fashion, repetitive, people will see that they get something out of it. And I, if, I fundamentally believe that people are not going somewhere just for the money. Um, people don't even leave their job just for the money. People leave their job because they think their job doesn't want them. And so you have to make sure that your employees knows that you want them, you want them to stay and they make the company better. Yeah, I, I do agree that people want to feel appreciated. And uh, yeah, I think that's awesome that you guys took a, a bus up to New York City with every single one of your employees for, the, for that event uh, on the, the New York Stock Exchange floor. It was fun. It was definitely fun. So what advice would you give for CFOs who are looking to raise venture capital? Well, um, first off, you should know your company and you must believe that it's worth investing that money. Um, the greater fool theory doesn't really work in the long run. And the other part of it is that there's always a temptation to, even if you have, like you have, you know what your business does, you know what, why it's great and why it's going to make money in the future. There's always a temptation to lean into what you think that the investor wants to hear. And that can often be a mistake because you end up just, doing things because you want that next tranche of money in from somebody and you lose focus. The, um, if your company is worth investing in, it's because the ideas that were put into it, creating it and the team that you put up and the market that's there is because that analysis was right. And um, I wouldn't listen too much to what investors say until they're on your board um, because you just lose fo focus. Yeah, and I guess it's it's a, it's a lot about probably finding a good fit, which means that the truth and uh, you know the the true story will go further than telling someone whatever it is they want to hear. That's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, and but it's a good environment to raise money in, and so there. Although you have to always present far more than you'd like in today's market, it 
there is more money out than there's ever been. And it all has to be invested in private companies. So it's a, it's a good position to be in. And are there any tools or technologies that you're using right now um, that are helping to make your life easier? I have a wonderful coffee machine. <laughs> and, um, I'm interested. What, what is it? Well, I have a Rocket Giotto, Giotto R58 or R16. It has two boilers so I can get uh, a fast espresso. And if I want to make an Americano, there's already uh, hot water for that. And I can steam the milk at the same time. And this <laughs> is a wonderful thing. And you have to focus on what makes your life efficient and what gives you the small pleasures of life. For me, it's waking up in the morning and making myself a strong espresso. I also have an individual coffee grinder that grinds just enough for a double espresso, which sets me off in a good mood. It also wakes me up, of course. And, but having routines that makes it easier for you to just get out of bed, get into work, and uh, put a smile on your face, that's the best technology that you can do. Yeah, it is all about the small pleasures in life. Um, and lastly, as a CFO, what what is keeping you up at night right now? Well, um, I try to get enough sleep. I think that's very, very important. Um, I agree. And But the things that uh, is the most challenging in today's uh, job market where we have overemployment uh, is it's hard to find enough resources and good enough resources. And so... I would say that the number one priority of almost everybody should be uh, recruiting and keeping your employees happy. A company, when you walk out at night and and turn out the light, most technology companies, you take the entire company with you because the value of that company is the people. We're not banks. We don't have, you know, gold coins or diamonds laying around. And so... The people is the most important asset in any firm. And so that is what I try to focus on. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, Thomas, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me, Megan. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing your story. And I wish you and Ion too continued success in the future. Sounds like you're both doing amazing things. Thank you very much. Uh, We try to do our best and also to have fun. Like, I'm sorry, but I have to run now. I'm going to go shoot some lasers at individual atoms. (laughs) That does sound like fun. To all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And until next week, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.